0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello. He was hardly a success in his lifetime. One of his books sold just 17 copies in 11 years. And yet, at the very end of his life, Marie-Henri Bale, better known by his pen name Stendhal, was recognized by the famous novelist Balzac as a genius. Today, we know him primarily for just two books— But thanks to those two works, The Red and the Black and The Charter House of Parma, he is recognized as one of the key figures in the development of the novel. What did he do? How did he do it? And what does it all mean? The story of Stendhal, today, on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. It's me, Jack, your host on this humble little podcast. I'm so glad you joined me today. It's been a rough summer. I've had some ups and downs, and I'm sure you have as well. I hope you're hanging in there. We're all going to make it through, people. We just need to keep our heads about us. If you're looking for a literary project this summer, and I know, I know there are plenty of literary projects to tackle, but here's one I recommend. Read some Stendhal, if you haven't before, or maybe even if you have The Red and the Black and The Charterhouse of Parma. I love them both. But you can also listen to our podcast today, and maybe that will inspire you to seek out those books, or maybe you'll feel like you don't need to read them, and that's okay too. There are a lot of books out there. We all have our lists, and we all try to get to one more book, one more author, one more thing to absorb. You'll never get to all of them. You just need to make each reading experience a great one. That's the best you can do. And if I have some value here as someone who has gone into this mine over and over and can report back, that's, that's how I feel sometimes. I'm like someone who's gone into a thousand of these mines, more than a thousand actually, but let's say a thousand. I've gone in with my flashlight on my helmet and reemerged all grimy, a little breathless. And I can report back, yes, there are valuable minerals in here. Or no, this one's dry, gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, nothing here. Or, big thumbs up. I'm exhausted, but by God, there is value down there to extract. Have at it, you fellow miners. Exploit this shaft to your heart's content. That's me. I like that version of me, that conception. I mean, I stagger off to the side where (laughs) the crowd is eager to plunge into the mine, but I stagger off to the side, and someone throws me a crust of bread and dumps some water on my face. They're trying to give me a ladle full of water to drink. They see that I'm hungry and thirsty, but they're too eager to go down to the mine themselves. And somewhere in me, even as I watch the crowd ignore me and head for the mines, I feel good about the role I have played. I'm up here dying. I breathed in some fumes down there. I performed the sacrifice. And maybe I'm sick now, maybe near death. My body is battered and bruised from the journeys. But I'm inspired by the enthusiasm of those who are now headed into the mine themselves. And that feeling is what gets me headed back to the next mine. And the next. And we'll do this all over again, won't we? My dear fellow miners, we'll do it again and again and again. So let's do this. Let's take a quick break, then hear from a few listeners, then dive into today's mine, the fascinating world of a fascinating creature, a fascinating human being, the great French novelist, Stendhal. Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. Here's an email from Ivan, or Ivan, I'll call him Ivan. Subject, fan email from a daily listener. Dear Jack. My name is Ivan. I'm 24 years old, originally from Venezuela, but living in France since late 2015. I've been listening to your podcast since the beginning of the quarantine. I remember having searched for Great Podcasts About Literature, and yours was often mentioned on Reddit and other platforms. Since I don't really enjoy audiobooks, every morning at 5am I check my podcast app and download one or maybe two episodes of the history of literature that I haven't listened to yet, and go off and walk around the park for about two hours. I think that with this email, I mostly wanted to say, thank you. You have no idea, or maybe you do, of the positive impact that your podcast has on its daily listeners, such as myself. P.S. As a suggestion, do you think you could maybe do an episode on Cormac McCarthy or Roberto Bolaño, that would be amazing. Best wishes, Ivan. That is fantastic. Thank you, Ivan. I'm so glad to hear that you're enjoying the show on your morning walks through the park. Two hours at five o'clock in the morning. It sounds kind of like heaven to me, actually. I'm an early morning person myself, except I don't go outside as much as I would like to. Usually I'm in the studio working away. But when I do go out, I love that feeling of being productive while everyone else is sleeping. Whether I'm exercising or traveling somewhere or just enjoying the planet as it comes out of its slumber, those are some great moments. And now, in a strange way, I feel like I get to join you there in France in that park for those moments. Thank you for bringing me along. So, Cormac McCarthy is probably the most requested author, seems like, and Roberto Bolaño is not far behind. Luckily, our frequent guest, Mike Palindrome, El Presidente, is a huge fan of both, so we can put them on the list. I'm going to say that the fact that these two are often requested says something about the authors, but also something about our listeners. As you know, I like to go a little deeper into literature, a little farther back. I like contemporary literature. I read it, but I also like the passage of time when I'm considering literature. I like the sorting mechanism that time provides. It's as if we're panning for gold. Not every grain of sand is valuable. Sometimes we have to shake the pan a little and let the gold nuggets emerge. If you spend too much time chasing the book of the week looking for gold, you can spend a lot of time reading dirt. <laughs> Sorry if I offend anyone with that. It's nice dirt as far as dirt goes. It's There's some really nice dirt, but you know what I mean. Gold is pretty nice, too. But the other thing that I like about going a little farther back is that you get to see the history of these books. A book that comes out last year or the year before is still being written, in a way. You can read it and admire it now, but the book itself doesn't have its own story yet. It's still being written by the readers who react to it. Will this book be influential? Will it have readers who understand it and treasure it and revere it? Or will they misunderstand it? Will it inspire anyone? Authors or readers? Will it cause revolutions or social change? Will it advance the development of a genre or form? Will it be lost and rediscovered and maybe lost and rediscovered again? Will it go on a syllabus and be read by millions? Or just a select few? That's all interesting to me because I'm interested not just in the books, but in the people who read them. So that's why I'm constantly resisting Listeners who email me and say, Did you hear about this new book by so and so? It's amazing, or everybody's talking about it. And I think, Well, sure, it may be amazing, and everyone may be talking about it, which is great. My hat's off to those books, but it's only half the story. The readers are the other half. Where are they? That part of the story is still in embryo. Let me wait a while before I dive in. Okay. That's a long way from Ivan. Oh, wait, I didn't finish yet. I think Cormac McCarthy and Roberto Bolaño are where a lot of listeners are. I was going to talk about that. Listeners aren't hooked like I am on this idea of needing to see the audience and their response. They like contemporary or near contemporary authors, because why not? There's something fresh and exciting and relevant about more recent works. I get it. I get that. I get that I'm the oddball here. Oddball? 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 Whatever you, however, you pronounce that. I'm the oddball here, fascinated by readers so much. Most people like a good recent book because the language is relevant, the people are relevant, the themes are relevant, everything seems fresh. If there's a direction in there, or advice, or commentary, it's a direction, or advice, or commentary that's relevant now. But at the same time, my listeners, I think, are with me in the first thing I said, the panning for gold business. They're not just chasing the flavor of the month. They recognize that there is a sifting process. It helps to separate the good from the truly great. And they point to Cormac McCarthy and Roberto Bolaño and say, this is gold, Jack. This is likely to stand the test of time. We're still sifting But these look a lot like gold nuggets here. When people study our era, they'll look to these too. There's others as well. Some of them are authors we've already covered. If we hadn't done an Alice Monroe episode or a whole string of them by now, as we have, I'm sure people would be asking for one. Or Murakami's another one. If we didn't have a Murakami episode, I'm sure I'd be getting a lot of requests for him in the email inbox. People recognize that those authors are gold, too, and they're probably right, and I think they're right with McCarthy and Bolaño, too, so they are on the list. Okay, that's a long way from Ivan, but thank you for the email, Ivan. Good luck to you. Okay, time for one more. This one is awesome. I love this email. Subject, greetings from suburban New Jersey! Hi, Jack! Another exclamation mark. Two for two. My name is Kaylee, and I'm a high school junior living in a small town in northern New Jersey. I started listening to your podcast about six months ago. I have never really been one for podcasts, but I happened to stumble upon yours in search of information on Anton Chekhov's gooseberries, which I was reading in English class at the time. Wow, let me stop there. What a great English class that is. My compliments to Kaylee's teacher. Back to the email. What I happened to find turned me into a podcast person, that's in quotes, and a devoted fan. Since then, you have accompanied me on many treks home from school, early mornings preparing my coffee and doing chores, as I am usually the first one in my house to wake up, and the absence of noise weirds me out, and walks in the park with my little Yorkshire terrier. (laughs) Oh, this is good. I'm enjoying this email. More walks in the park. Kind of wish I had a Yorkshire terrier accompany me on walks in the park. The pandemic and quarantine have made me wish that we had a dog. I've never felt that before. I think we're all starved for a little extra companionship these days. Okay, back to the email. I've always been a big reader and have prided myself on being well read in the classics. (laughs) This is so sweet coming from a high school junior. Off to a good start, she is. Well read in the classics, I'm glad. Okay, your podcast has given me so much context and insight into some of my favorite authors, and has only made my to be read list grow enormously. With the exception of Mike's unrecommendation of Don Quixote, with the addition of authors such as Saul Bellow, Haruki Murakami, and Carl Ove Nausgaard. Okay, those are three good books for you to look for, Kaylee. But let me tell you, I'm already imagining the people who are furious to hear that Don Quixote has been crossed off your list and they condemn Mike and me, as they probably should, for having it crossed off. So let me just tell you, Kaylee, I was keeping this as a surprise, but I'll preview it here. Mike has been going through a reconsideration of his on recommendation. We may have some news on that front. Stay tuned. Back to the email. Additionally, you have inspired me to pursue writing, I have been writing ever since I was young, and always would say that I wanted to be a writer when I grew up. However, at the ripe age of 13, I decided that my youthful aspiration of becoming an author was simply too idealistic, and I needed to settle for something more sensible, and I settled on becoming an English teacher, giving up on writing fiction for, what I thought was, for good. Although, though, sorry, though I still want to teach English, during quarantine I was inspired to get back into writing. I wrote and revised some short stories which I have shared with friends and family members, and even submitted one to a teen literary magazine, which has been accepted to be published in their next issue. I believe that you and your podcast are to thank. I know that writing isn't always the most stable career choice, but I don't think I'll stop writing for a long time now. I love creating more than anything, and it's just something I love too much for me to give up. Unfortunately, As I am a 16-year-old living on the meager salary of the allowance I get from chores, I simply do not have the budget to become a patron. However, I am always strongly recommending your podcast to my like-minded literary friends and even my English teachers. Thank you so, so much for a fantastic podcast. You are a treat to listen to every day. I know you probably have a lot of requests, so I won't add another to your list, and frankly, I can't think of any favorite authors that you haven't covered. That's all. Be well. Kaylee. Hmm. Wow, Kaylee. That's all. That's all, Kaylee says. That's all. That's so much. (laughs) That's more than enough. My cup runneth over. Kaylee, this email has truly warmed my heart. Kaylee is Generation Z, which is the generation that's being raised by my generation, Generation X. And I'm starting to wonder if the greatest legacy that my generation is going to hand off to the world is that we did our part to raise Generation Z. Kaylee's email, let me just tell you that I was once a copy editor, once upon a time, and of course I've been reading for decades, and I taught college courses for a while, all in my previous life. I think I have some credibility here when I say this. Kaylee's email was letter perfect. No typos, no grammar mistakes, nothing that I had to clean up to read it. So that's positive aspect number one. This young woman, Kaylee, can write English perfectly. But it's the ideas that shine through here and the attitude, the confidence and optimism, the planning for the future, the wisdom and maturity of recognizing that a balance between the practical and the creative is an essential part of a healthy human being. Go forth and prosper, young Kaylee. Show us all how you can teach and you can create. There's room in you for both the sensible, practical side and the creative side, just like there's room in this world for Kaylee's. Step aside, grownups. We've messed things up for long enough. Maybe it's time to let Gen Z take the stage. Thank you very much for your email, Kaylee. I'm so glad to hear that you've been enjoying the podcast. Do not worry at all about not being a patron. I completely understand. And your email was payment enough. Okay. Let's turn to Stendhal, another author for Kaylee's List, if she hasn't read it before. Although if her teachers are putting gooseberries in her hand, maybe I should just stay out of the way. (laughs) That's some pretty good decision-making on the part of her school system. But Stendhal is good, too. We'll make our case for Stendhal after this. Let's start with Stendhal's life, but let me give you some previews of what's to come. So much of Stendhal's life was about him not being a novelist that I don't want you to forget how important a novelist he eventually became. He's absolutely essential to a discussion of the history of the novel, in my opinion. But what does that mean? Linton Strachey said that Stendhal denovelizes the novel while skillfully retaining its traditional apparatus. Balzac said of the Charter House of Parma that it often contained a whole book in a single page. Stendhal himself thought his works were ahead of their time and that they would be appreciated better in the late eighteenth century, sorry, the late nineteenth century and beyond. In this he turned out to be prophetic. Zola, the great naturalist, claimed Stendhal as his literary forefather, Paul Bourget, the early. 20th century master of the French psychological novel, cited The Red and the Black as a classical novel of psychological analysis. André Gide said, Stendhal is the cuttlefish on which I sharpen my beak. Intriguing. We'll get there. Stendhal was born in the city of Grenoble in southeastern France. From its position in the foothills of the mountains, it's closer to Italy than it is to Paris, definitely closer to Turin. And it's even closer to Milan than it is to Paris. There's perhaps something symbolic about this, something appropriate, as Stendhal loved Italy and spent significant amounts of time there. And he would later in life identify himself as a Milanese. But we're not there yet. He was born in 1783. We're on the eve of the French Revolution, of course, which breaks out when he's six. His beloved mother died a year later when he was seven, leaving him with a father he didn't like as well he feuded with his father off and on throughout his life. His father was a parliamentary lawyer there in Grenoble, and he assigned young Stendhal—well, he wasn't Stendhal yet, but we'll call him Stendhal to make things easier—his father turned over Stendhal's education to a priest who taught him until he was 12, and who succeeded in giving Stendhal a lifelong hatred of clericalism. Stendhal then went to a newly established school in Grenoble for a few years, and then in 1799, he headed off to Paris with a letter of introduction to the Derue family. They got him a position in the ministry for war, and suddenly, while still a teenager, he joined the Derue brothers in following Napoleon to Italy. We already have the seedlings of his two great novels in his life as Stendhal would draw upon the events that I've just described. Stendhal was a witness to the Battle of Marengo, and then he enlisted. He was promoted quickly and got a posting with a general. But when peace temporarily broke out, he returned to Paris to study. He fell in love with an actress who was headed to Marseille, so he went there too. His father found out about this and cut off his funds. Stendhal was desperate, so he took a job as a clerk in a grocery store for a while. Meanwhile, the actress dumped him for a Russian, so Stendhal returned to Paris and got an administrative position thanks to his old friends, the Derues. He did this for several years, helping the Napoleonic war effort with the efficient execution of his duties. Once he had to raise five million francs from a province, and he managed to raise seven million. He was extremely devoted to Napoleon, and when the Napoleonic regime fell, he refused to take a posting in the new government. Instead, he went to Milan, where he had been before. He met Manzoni and Lord Byron, And he had found a new lover named Angelina, with whom he had fallen in love years before. And now he started writing. This is 1814 we're talking about. He's in his early 30s. And he writes some music criticism that he seems to have basically plagiarized. But it doesn't matter so much. He gets exiled from Milan by the Austrian authorities, who are suspicious of his friendships with Italian patriots. So he returns to Paris, more of a literary man now than a government official. He hangs out in literary salons, and he writes works on love and Shakespeare and Racine and Rossini. He published his first novel in 1827, when he was in his early 40s. The novel went nowhere. Finally, in 1830, he comes out with the first of his great novels, The Red and the Black. It, too, goes nowhere. Nine years later, in 1839, he published The Charter House of Parma, which was the only thing he wrote that had any kind of popular success. Balzac writes a rave review of the book in 1840. Stendhal dies in March of 1842. He wrote his own epitaph, in which he called himself a Milanese. He was, at that point, pretty obscure. It was left to future generations to discover his works and elevate his status as a writer. This humble Milanese is now generally recognized as one of the greatest French novelists who ever lived. So, let's turn to the novels themselves. There are two we need to talk about. The Red and the Black tells the story of Julian Sorel, a tutor in a noble family who seduces his pupil's mother. I won't spoil it except to say that he eventually becomes engaged to another woman, and his former lover, the pupil's mother, writes a letter to the family of his fiance, exposing the affair and jeopardizing the wedding. It's a fascinating book, with a lot of psychological twists and turns for our protagonist, Julian, who rises through the ranks much as Stendhal himself did. Julian is commonly viewed as the kind of person that Stendhal imagined himself to be. The book is set against the background of French social order during the post-Napoleonic period. This is the era of Restoration France, And we see what it's like for a young man from the provinces to rise socially. Can he overcome his modest upbringing to rise through the ranks? Julian applies himself to this project using talent and hard work, but also deception and hypocrisy. And like a good romantic protagonist of his era, his passions are immense. He follows them because he has no choice, but this does not always end in ways that benefit him. There's a beautiful tension. I'm speaking novelistically now. There's a beautiful tension between Julian's character, which is very ambitious and finds its natural home in a nostalgic loyalty to Napoleon and to the ideals of revolutionary and republican France. Being a young man of humble origins in France at this moment in time, you'd imagine that you were maybe destined for greatness if you were such a person, like those revolutionaries of a generation ago or maybe even like Napoleon himself. He didn't uh, humbly accept his fate, after all. He explored his greatness and imposed his will upon the world. That's the model that these young Frenchmen have to work with. At the same time, if you're a young man of humble origins in France at this moment, your outlet, the path available to you, is not to head to the barricades or to join the march on Moscow, but to work your way up within the current regime. Which is in some ways diametrically opposed to all those ideals and notions of individual greatness and Napoleonic worship. What does it mean to be sincere in this context when everything in you is formed by a devotion to Napoleon and the Napoleonic spirit, and to be in a a system where that's not only shunned, but doesn't get you anywhere? It's like those political actors who cozy up to the White House, no matter who the president is, is that sincere or insincere? Well, if your overriding principle is ambition, then it might be more sincere than it looks at first. The Charter House of Parma has a different setting, but it has some of the same themes, and it's also rich territory for the kind of novel I described above, where society's tensions quite naturally find their way into the characters who tremble with the different currents that pull them in different directions. This one starts with Napoleon's army sweeping into Milan and a young Italian nobleman who's part of the awakening that happens. The Lombard region prior to Napoleon was sort of sleepily allied with Austria. But thanks to the influence of the Napoleonic spirit, a young man like Fabrice is suddenly alive with new possibilities. There are rumors that his father might actually have been a French lieutenant. When Napoleon returns to France as part of the Hundred Days, Fabrice tries to join him, which doesn't really work. He's 17 at that point, and he's kind of naive. He doesn't speak French very well, and he's probably not someone who should have wandered too far from his home on Lake Como, which is generally true for anyone in any context of any era. Why would you want to leave that paradise? It's like saying you don't want to live in Eden. But in any case, Fabrice has some adventures and misadventures as he wanders through France. He's imprisoned as a spy at one point, and eventually he ends up on the battlefield at uh, the Battle of Waterloo, wearing the uniform of a dead French soldier. It's chaotic and sometimes absurd, which is probably how battle felt much of the time, even though Within the minds of the soldier, there's also a lot of romanticization going on. The excitement is not terrifying, or not just terrifying, but also enchanting. The book then turns from battle to the court intrigues of Parma, including the rise of Fabrice's Aunt Gina, who becomes the Duchess Sanseverina. She tries to help Fabrice along the way. We see his rise as well as hers as the two struggle to overcome various challenges to their fortune. The book has been described as a romantic thriller, thanks to its intrigue and adventures, but it's also an astute look at the psychology of flawed but appealing characters as they fight through the intricacies of society and court politics. Along the way, in these books, Stendhal proves himself to be adept at some usual novelistic techniques like quick character sketches and vivid characters and foreshadowing and irony, Irony is what helps make the style seem fresh even today. Here's a classic Stendhal quote. I love her beauty, but I fear her mind. End quote. Or, quote, our true passions are selfish. Or, God's only excuse is that he does not exist. Or, a novel is a mirror walking along a main road. Those are so good. How about this one? If you don't love me, it does not matter. Anyway, I can love for both of us. And, after moral poisoning, one requires physical remedies and a bottle of champagne. (laughs) That could be written in 2020, I think. It's the kind of kick that a contemporary writer would add. It's almost like a good tweet. How about this one? A little bit of a longer passage here. Quote, a man may meet a woman and be shocked by her ugliness. Soon, if she is natural and unaffected, her expression makes him overlook the faults of her features. He begins to find her charming. It enters his head that she might be loved, and a week later he is living in hope. The following week he has been snubbed into despair, and the week afterwards he has gone mad, end quote. <laughs> That's a very Stendhalian uh, passage there. All in, what, three sentences? Okay, it's so good. Okay, here's one. Quote, the ordinary procedure of the nineteenth century is that when a powerful and noble personage encounters a man of feeling, he kills, exiles, imprisons, or so humiliates him that the other, like a fool, dies of grief. End quote. Wow, so much packed into that. Or this one, last one. Quote, what is the use of a love that makes one yawn? One might as well take to religion. End quote. <laughs> I think I've given you a sense of why these books are so good, but let's talk about them in the context of their predecessors and successors. Why do they stand out so much? What did he do in these two books so differently? Often we talk about the development of the novel in terms of technique. The first one to use the close third person, for example, or the development of the stream of consciousness as a technique. Sometimes the development is stylistic, the use of words, the sound, the voice, words. Word, the use of words is funny with Stendhal. It's a funny thing to think about. For a writer of his accomplishments, he's kind of unusual in that regard. Critics have often noted that with Stendhal, we don't look for his greatness in words. But that's not because of a failing on his part, but kind of a choice. Sometimes you get the feeling with those 18th and 19th century novelists that they're in love with their voice, with the untapped potential of their voice and the power of their words and the quantity of their words. Maybe it's because they're being paid for their words, paid for installments, paid for the sheer number of words they are cranking out for the space they can take up. But there's also a feeling of expansiveness, a kind of joy in that. Prose is more expansive than poetry, by definition. And it's not until later that we start getting the Joycean agonies over selecting the proper word. I say Joycean? I guess that works too, but I really should have said Flaubert. We're decades before Flaubert. This is still the novel as it's handed to Stendhal by innovators like Fielding and Richardson, unleashing prose in furious torrents. It's Sir Walter Scott and Balzac, Victor Hugo. These are writers who say, I don't need to find a moment or two to focus on. I'm not trying to etch a single idea into something permanent. As a poet might, I'm trying to capture life itself, an entire society, an entire world teeming with life. And that's not a single thing. It's a multiplicity of things with characters and jobs and trees and rivers and institutions and forests and oceans and money and marriages and cities and towns. And once in a while, the moon and the stars and more, 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 always more. Here are my words, says Victor Hugo. I will take all this life into my brain and digest it all and deliver it back to you with my words. My words will be the world. My words will present the world, and I'm not confined by verse. I can unspool all this with my pen, writing prose, which lets me write sentence after sentence after sentence. Stendhal is in that tradition, too. That's the time in which he's writing. But he cares even less about words than a Balzac or a Scott. As John Bailey put it, for Stendhal, words get in the way. You feel like you're plunged into life itself. You're in the world. You're not reading about the world. Stendhal is often praised for going deep into the psychology of his characters. But it's Stendhal's psychology that's just as important here. He keeps us off balance. He keeps us guessing. Sometimes he's completely naive as his enthusiasm seems so open and trusting, it's hard to believe it's real. He worships Napoleon openly, as the author seems to have done in real life. And he worships certain characters, too. At the same time, he doesn't come across as hopeless, like those writers whose enthusiasms we don't share. When writers love something without qualification, and they assume that you will also love it, and you don't, the effect is terrible. It's like watching a bad stand-up comedian. You know they think it's funny, And they must think that you will think it's funny. That might be worse. That they think you think it will be funny because you don't. And they don't get it. And it's awkward and embarrassing. And you think, what are you doing? I'm not with you on this. Your whole job is to get me to be with you. That's the number one thing. And I'm not. You've lost me. You're bad at this. Or at least you're not for me. Stendhal doesn't feel like that. With Stendhal, you get caught up in his enthusiasms, whatever they are, or at least I do. He has a way of generating enthusiasm for his topic through his own commitment to it and through his own ironic detachment from it, through his own charisma and that commitment. There are some boring stretches, as there are in most of these big novels. Nobody's really immune to that. These are marathons, not sprints. But while others are giving us history and giving us a kind of overview of the world, a comprehensive overview, Stendhal is more nimble. He's looking at individuals. He's looking at the self. He's sort of a romantic novelist, romantic with a capital R, with the themes and perspective of romanticism. He didn't like romanticism, or he says he didn't, but there's an affinity there. His books have the kind of glorification of the individual and individual energy that chime in harmony with the bells that the romantics were also striking. His voice is distinctive and personal, and he cares about the efforts of his characters to become distinctive and personal too. We see this in his essays as well. He cared about the rational, and he relied on his intelligence to create a kind of philosophy of life for himself, a system according to which one can live. It's a great 18th century project, not just to think it can be done, but to go ahead and do it, to view it as a worthy project. But Stendhal's living in the 19th century, the age of Napoleon. And even as he's setting out to be a great rationalist, he's aware that emotion can undermine everything you're trying to do, can and will. Remember how Ben Franklin said, I can perfect myself in his autobiography. And a century or so later, D.H. Lawrence said, no, you can't. You fool. And your efforts to do so have a choking effect. You're choking life. You're draining life of everything good and important. Remember that? We talked about that in the D.H. Lawrence episode. Well, Stendhal sits between Franklin and Lawrence chronologically, and he embodies both points of view as well, all wrapped up into one. How does that outlook translate into the novel? His characters aren't static. They go through changes rapidly. They have different emotions, different ideas, different states of mind. Other novelists could do this, but they don't. Or they didn't always do it back then. A dull character often stays dull. An earnest character stays earnest. A passionate character remains passionate. Headstrong is headstrong. Stendhal is quicker than that. Quicksilver, he's often called. A character might be earnest in one moment and cynical in another. Patient here and impatient there. Isn't that true to life? It feels that way to me. I see that in myself and in everyone I know. So there's that advantage. Makes the character seem lifelike, but it also keeps the reader on edge. Plots are formed, I'm talking generally here about plots, not just about Stendhal. Plots are formed by characters responding to events. Characters make choices. If you have a character who is, let's say, kind and charitable, then you can throw events at them, and the plot is going to be that of a kind and charitable person being tested or challenged or rewarded or punished. There's a story there and it can be a satisfying story. And what we call a character arc is the notion that a good story must take that kind and charitable person and change them in some way by the end. They have to be transformed. But even this is a little predictable. That miser will turn out to be generous. That angry man will soften. The naive ingenue will will learn to become more cynical. And it takes a long time to get there, and we are often ahead of the author. Stendhal is a, is different. It's different. It's a different experience when you read Stendhal. If a character is trusting at one moment and cynical at another because after all we are all trusting at times and cynical at times, so it rings true. That's how humans are. But what then is going to happen in each situation? The reader doesn't know. You can't predict. Each situation becomes more immediate and feels more spontaneous. Our plot can form out of two components. It's not just the events arising in the character's path that will shape the character as the character slowly undergoes a transformation. In this case, the Stendalian case, the character is capable of changing shapes on their own, or of shaping the events that he or she encounters. Not in some predictable one-sentence summary kind of way, but in a more dynamic way. It's like the difference between watching a comet streak across the sky and watching a firework go rising up, knowing that the white flash is going to burst into a dazzling display. But you don't know yet what those colors and shapes are going to look like. That's what's so appealing about Stendhal. His characters flounder. They aspire to greatness. They want things. They suffer under restrictions and they strive to shed those restrictions. But mostly... They are people, people who can live and breathe and contradict themselves and change and can surprise us all the time. They're human versions of fireworks. And for those of us sitting on the ground, our eyes trained to the sky, they can make us catch our breath. They can make the heart pound. The white light flashes into view. It soars into the heavens and we wait for the sound and the fury, the explosion and the dazzle. Mm, there we go that's gonna do it for this episode of the history of literature my thanks to stendhal for giving me the pleasure he has over the years and to kaylee and ivan for giving me more recent but also significant pleasure thanks to their lovely emails wow this was a quick one speaking of explosions (laughs) came and went (laughs) I hope there was some dazzle in there for you too support the history of literature at patreon.com literature and historyofliterature.com shop oh and a reminder we are now on the podglomerate network which has other fine podcasts like bookable and storybound which you should feel free to check out while you're waiting for the next episode of the history of literature or even if you're not You can look for something else once in a while. I don't mind. Exploration is part of the journey, people. Speaking of journeys, we'll take another step in our journey later this week. It's episode 250, and I have a little something in mind for it. So sign up and subscribe if you haven't already. You won't want to miss it. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.